I knew this was a new trajectory of my life. I have 17 years to do. How am I gonna do this 17 years and make it home? The Muslim chaplain gave a speech and he asked everybody in, um, that was attending, what, what would your legacy be? What would they know you by if you died today? And I thought about it. I never thought about it like that before. And then if I died today, what would they know me by? And I thought, I, nothing positive. So from that day forward, I always thought like, damn, how can I leave a different legacy? How can I do something better with my name, with my life, that's gonna make an impact? From the greater Boston area, you are listening to My Turn Conversations, brought to you by Tufts Education Reentry Network. These are stories of life during and after incarceration told by people who've lived it and are working to overcome the odds. In this episode, Nerdine, Marty, Nigel, and I, Rome, discuss our first and last days in prison and the difficulty of starting our lives outside after serving lengthy prison sentences. We share stories of education on the inside, turning points, and some of the growth we experienced behind the wall. My name is Rome Chacon. My first day in was towards the end of 1991, and my last day in was July 27th of 2022. I've always thought of myself first as an artist. I started out sketching when I was young, messing with spray paint on walls and developed a passion for being an artist. I also have become quite the dog trainer. I spent eight years training dogs for the needs organization and service dogs. They were like my children. So I'm very proud of that as well. My name is Marty O'Brien. On June 21st, 2005, I went to state prison. I served just under 17 years and came home on December 1st, 2021. I actually happened to know Rome from the needs program at MCI Concord. We trained service dogs together while we we're on the inside. So it's nice to be involved in this program now that we're both on the outside. I'm also a father of two daughters. While I was incarcerated, I learned to tattoo. Now I have my own tattoo shop. In addition to learning to train service dogs and to tattoo, I was also able to receive a college degree while incarcerated. So I made something good of the time that I served. My name is Nerdine Alabi. My, um, my first day in was June 15th, 2007. And my last day in was June 22nd, 2022. And I feel like prison didn't change me. I changed myself by being the best version of me, being the true me. My name is Nigel Vaughn. My first day in was April 14th, 2005. My last day in was July 21st, 2022. I always felt like I had a great imagination. I never thought when I was younger that I'd end up serving such a lengthy sentence. Throughout my sentence, I felt like, you know, I learned my lesson. It shouldn't, it shouldn't have to take nearly two decades to teach someone a lesson. My first day in was at the age of 17. That day was crazy. I got arrested. I was a juvenile at the time, so I thought it was just a juvenile case at the time because I cut off my ankle bracelet. 
when I went to court, they brought me to the adult session and told me I had an adult case. So that was confusing at first. When the transport van came, they called my name. And I, when I came out, it was just nothing but adults. There was no juvenile there. And it was like, you're going to National Street. Going into adult facility, it was like the unknown because now they didn't treat you like a kid. They treat you like, like you're an adult. You can fend for yourself. So my whole mindset is not to be a victim. Always attack first. And that's all I thought about in my head going in, knowing that I'm in an adult facility. There's always be the aggressor, always be the alpha. When I first walked in, it was just somebody approached me, where you from? I knew what that question entailed. Basically asked me what game I was a part of. I noticed as more people coming in, that's what people did. Me seeing that now coming from the juvenile facility was very different from adults. So now I'm paying more attention to and not holding tank what what the rules were and, and things like that. So I started partaking in the things that they was doing, basically asking people as people came in, asking them where it was from to make sure I'm safe in the holding tank. People started coming in and people asking where they're from and it's leading to fights, multiple fights. People getting jumped and they brought me to another holding tank dressed in a state uniform, sat there for hours and gave us old milk and a bologna sandwich that was probably sat there for weeks. When I went to the other side, waiting to go upstairs to Newman, um, I knew I noticed somebody come in. I had issues from the street. And before they brought me upstairs, they brought him around. And then that's when we got into a physical altercation and brought us um, segregation, which is the whole, which is 23 and 1. And that was my first night in Nashville Street. For me, my first day was a bit different. I had got arrested over the weekend or something. So, you know, coming to arrest me, there was suddenly a whole bunch of whole bunch of banging going on and police surrounded the house. I looked out the window, I seen them fa falling in, and I'm like, whoa. And then suddenly I could hear a helicopter. It was alarming. They were banging, banging, banging on the door, trying to get in. The door was actually unlocked. They never turned it off. So I ran to the door and I locked the door. But they were banging so hard on every window, every door, that the door just it just unlocked. And they came in. I laid on the ground, you know, just to make sure that they didn't think I was armed and dangerous and just come in there shooting. They could say anything behind that door. I don't know what they would have said about me. Yeah, I walked out there in handcuffs. There was the helicopter was up there. I guess I was on live television. Family had told me that like stamp captured on the screen and they watched them. They watched me get placed in a cruiser. So I was actually like right around the corner from the police station when I got caught. As soon as I got there in the back of the police station, it was like a hundred cops there or whatever they were. And they were in full riot gear. I didn't know what that was about, what it was for. I think they did like a sweep in the city called Operation Blue Thunder within the next couple of days. I seen it in the newspaper, but that's what I saw going in. I was first day in. It was it was it was kind of scary. It was it was different to see. It kind of looked like the army was walking around, but yeah, it was a, it was a little weird. So I just from there, I just sat in a police station for a couple of days until I got brought to court to be arraigned. Arraignment was a little different. Um, I was in a, behind a glass. There was a whole bunch of 
family and friends there to support me. People were crying. And I was, you know, making faces, trying to comfort them. I have this face about me that kind of smiles a lot. But the newspaper were there and they like captured these certain smirks that I had on and they tried to portray it like I was smiling at the crime. And my case was very high profile. So like this picture is going in the newspaper repeatedly, repeatedly. It's instilling in people's head that I don't care about the crime that I'm charged with. And I think it's funny and I think it's a game. So um, I got held without bail and I was being brought to jail. When I'm being brought to jail, it was myself inside of a paddy wagon. There were a canine in front of me and back of me and two unmarked cars in front of me and back of me. And we drove straight in a straight line from the courthouse to the jail. Just me, five cars transporting me. You know, it kind of made me feel like a monster. Yeah, so that was my first day in. When I think about the night that I got arrested, the crime was committed on a Thursday and I actually got away. At the time, I had a drug habit. Uh, I was addicted to Oxycontin. And being on the run and being an addict is uh, not a fun situation. And then as soon as I went back to the safe house where I was hiding out, I noticed, you know, a lot of police lights in the area. I just had a bad feeling. I, I called my girlfriend and the cops had detained her. They, they were monitoring our phones. So I called and um, she answered the phone in tears. I told the cop that, you know, I would surrender if they would let her go. And the Boston police took me to the area a police station and then I just sat in the holding cell waiting to go to court in the morning I knew at that time that my life had changed you know for quite the worse I was a single dad and uh, I knew that you know I was going to prison for a long time and I was gonna have to break the news to my mom I knew that was gonna break her heart I didn't know how I would tell my daughters. They were 13 and 11 at the time. Their mom had just gotten killed in a plane crash two years earlier. So I felt like a real ass for uh, getting into to trouble when I knew that they needed me to be the, their dad. It's hard for me to remember my first day or night in. I do remember a feeling that it was all over. Like whatever life I did have at that time was over. It wasn't until I got to max and I was already sentenced to life without that I started to, that first night, that's what I consider my first night. I knew I was in max and I knew I was around a bunch of adults and none of my peer group was there. I was still just a teenager and everybody was bigger, stronger, faster, smarter. That first night was full of fear. That was toxic as hell for me. I didn't feel remorse for any of my crime. I didn't even think about it like that. I didn't think it was a big deal at all. Later on, after I served my first 22 years of the prison sentence with life without parole, I had made such a problem of myself in 
that state, they did send me to Massachusetts. So where, how was your first day in Massachusetts? That's a whole other story because actually uh, I had uh, grown into a man. I don't consider myself much of a man at 19. I consider myself uh, an angry young kid, misguided. I didn't even think about remorse, but yet 22 years later on my way to Massachusetts, I felt like I was a man. Now I didn't think about hurting anybody. You know, that first night, uh, you know, falling in Vegas, I wanted to hurt somebody and make a name for myself in violence and create fear. However, getting to Massachusetts, it was a completely different story. I couldn't wait to see what strangers thought of the man I really think I am today. And I knew that the strangers were going to be able to tell me and say, you know, I'm not really the monster I initially was brought up to think I was. And now I'm a man who I've built and I like who I am. I've developed character. I have morals. I do have remorse. All those things had a time to develop in me, not because of prison, but in spite of it. However, by the time I did get to rep Massachusetts and that first day in there, I didn't feel like I needed to hurt anybody. I didn't want to be anyone's enemy. So there was a definite contrast in those first days. I sat, I'll say 14 years before I really, really took education seriously. The first part of education for me was just earning good time. They gave you that to as some incentive to go. That was perfect for me to try to get out as soon as I could. But when the My Turn Inside Out program came into the prison, it really installed some humanity back into me. It just gave me that sense of security. Looking back, I don't think I knew who I was. I, I, I think I was a person that I thought I should be. I looked up to um, the wrong people, admired the wrong things. And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, I was a follower. I think my first experience with education or continued education is what really helped me find my own identity. Inside, there was a lot of madness. A lot of the times you're treated like an animal. For an example, I asked a CO, can I get some toilet paper? A CO puts a roll of toilet paper on his fingers. He rolls up to 10 times at most. Some of the toilet paper off of the toilet paper roll, he rips it off, he gives it to me. Take that to use for toilet paper. And there's nothing I could do about it. I actually put in a grievance once about it just to document what was going on. You know, I'm down to having to use my rags, sheets. I'm going to the door. CO, can I get some toilet paper? Yeah, I got you on my next round. Next round comes around. It's the other officer. CO, I asked your partner for some toilet paper. Can you give me some toilet paper? Yeah, I got you on my next round. Getting treated like that repetitively for years on in. It's going to take some time to undo that. But in regard to education, when the Tuppet program Inside Out came in, that was like a breath of fresh air. They 
came in and accepted us. They had a genuine face. They had a genuine smile and handshake. Everyone there made me feel like a human being again. They restored some sense of humanity and it was very much needed. I was in a dark place at a dark time. And I just really appreciate the opportunity for that education. I was able to learn about the person that I really was or the person that I could be if I made decisions for myself. And um, it takes a long time to reach that point. Because like Nigel said, there aren't a lot of programs in prison designed to you know, truly rehabilitate somebody. It's up to the individual to decide what kind of person that they want to be. And you have to put in the work to become that person because they're not going to do it for you. The transformation for me was, you know, just wanting to be intelligent enough to challenge them and hold them accountable. I was in the medium security. I was de-report free for like four years and I got into the Tufts My Turn Inside Out program. And for some reason, the COs there just decided they wanted to throw me in a hole. I felt like they did it just because they could. And I was in that situation like, damn, how can I let them just get away with that? So I started thinking of ways to like, combat that thinking of ways to hold them accountable and I ended up like actually learning the law or trying to because I'm not very seasoned at that but I started digging into that and I ended up suing them civilly I lost but like I wanted to challenge them I didn't like I wasn't comfortable with them just being able to toss me in a hole for no reason I sat for like four and a half months and then got found innocent. I ended up beating it, getting out, and then got into college. One year later, they threw me right back in the hole the same day. But they ended up being successful this time, and it sent me to the max. They ended up planting a knife in my cell. I lost the program. I was supposed to be a part of the first cohort. So like in those instances where something like that happens, where an inmate or a prisoner is wronged, he can't get any justice unless he files a grievance. And he has to file a grievance in a certain amount of time. So like, I didn't know these things until I started learning. And most of us coming in, the CEOs ain't gonna tell you, oh yeah, go to the law library, learn how to sue us. <laughs> They're not gonna teach you that. So I had to learn that. Just to expand on what you said about um, how prison doesn't change you that you got to change that's true you got to change on your own the, the individual has to change make a conscious decision of which path they want to take for me for myself it was hard for me making a conscious decision of not living that life was my choice it wasn't what the prison offered the programs and things like that it wasn't nothing like that it was the, the conscious decision of making your own choice and what you see your future out to be and for me, it was just like analyzing my outcome. So I analyzed friends that went home or people I just knew in prison that went home and got killed or went home 
and kill somebody and then going home and being successful. And me analyzing those people, I noticed one particular thing that separated the people that went home and got killed or went home and killed somebody and went home and made them successful was education. The people that went home and did good was people that had like went to a college courses, learned some type of trade and went home and pursued that. So I knew that was something that I had to do. Me consciously noticing that these colleges coming into the um, prison and giving us that that olive branch to change our life was something drastic. If you're going to grow, I used to call it swimming up the waterfall. If you want anything good out of your experience in prison, you're going to do it against the grain. No one gives a shit about that in there. As it turns out, while building my character, despite the environment, I realized that I wanted more from myself than just to be an ugly part of an ugly place. Well, for me, when I was serving my sentence, all I thought about was getting home to my family and just the horror of being in prison was just everyday torture to me. But finding that sanctuary for me during that prison sentence was being in a college program and just having that brotherly community and having professors come into the classroom and treat me like a human being was so great for me that I didn't even want to leave that community when I had the opportunity to do so. Since we talked about our first day in, can we talk about our last day in? Oh my God, my last day in? Oh, it was madness. It was a lot of waiting in the holding cells. Just waiting, waiting, waiting for clearance. And I remember just pushing my cart like to the fence and I didn't know how to feel. Um, they brought me into a room, stripped me, gave me some regular clothes to put on. And I remember jumping in the truck with my girl, just driving, driving home and just Felt surreal, it didn't feel real. I didn't know how to like feel at in the moment. I just didn't know how to feel. And I was a little paranoid about things like who knows I'm coming home, who's gonna know where I live, like who's gonna see me and you know, things of that nature. But for that reason, I kind of just stayed to myself. I had to immediately report to parole. They were like, make no stops, go straight over there. So the first thing I did was go check in with parole. As soon as I got there, my parole officer's supervisor was there and he was my parole officer like 17 years ago <laughs> before I did that sentence. And he's like, oh yeah. But he strapped the bracelet on me and that was pretty much it. I walked out of there trying to adjust to society just because you disassociate yourself from any issues or drama doesn't mean the people that you know opposed you are ready to take that step with you when i when i think about my last day on the inside i have a lot of mixed emotions that morning when i woke up and it was finally a reality that it was the day I was going home. 
I knew my family was on the other side of that door waiting for me and I was excited to go. But part of me was pretty sad that people that I had grown to care about were going to continue to endure the miserable existence that, that I had just been through for you know many years. All four of us just happened to be released from the same institution. And when you talk about that, if I remember correctly, it's a big red door that slid open. And when, when that door opens, you see your family for the first time, knowing that you're free. Uh, it's really an emotional time. Before the day I was supposed to be released, um, I spoke to my sister and somebody contacted her on Facebook saying, I guess it was like the victim's family contacting her and saying, oh, I know he's being released. So Nigel speaking on people that don't forgive or people that are still on that street mentality shows like how the mindset that you have to have going out there, being aware you're surrounded. So knowing my family telling me that had me like on edge a little bit, like, cause I know what my plans was to go home and pursue my education. But at the same time, it's like difficult because I'm going to be still in the same city that I committed all these actions and don't know who's around me or who's might do something to me or my family because of my actions 15 years ago. So going home that next day was like kind of hard for me. Like, do I continue with this education or do I just go back to the way I was just to make sure I'm good? So leaving that day, that morning, the CO came to my door, knocked on like, you're leaving. I still didn't believe it because prior to me doing the 15 years, I was going home, but ended up getting charged and never um, not going home that day. So I didn't believe it. They brought me down to booking, seeing the nurse who gave me my medical papers and things like that. Then they brought me down to booking. They stripped me. Um, they gave me, they, I put back on my clothes, brought me down the property, grabbed my property, and I sat in booking for like, felt like days. I'm just looking at the clock, and they put a clock right there, so I'm just looking at the clock. Every minute I looked up, it was only one minute that went by. I look up again, it was only two minutes, felt like three hours. I'm just sweating, I'm just nervous. I'm like, then they finally called me after like, probably like two hours, but it was like, too much sitting in that cell. So they finally called me like, all right, um, your family's here. But prior to them releasing me, they asked me stupid questions like, what was your last address? I'm like, 15 years ago, I don't know. I don't remember my last address. So they asked me like, who's your mom? Who's your little stupid questions? I'm answering it. But as I'm answering the questions, I can see out the front of Concord and my little sister, my mother's out there. They just looking around. You can just I can tell that they was nervous. Like, is it really gonna happen? I'm just looking at them. They can't see me. I can see them. They pacing back and forth. So finally they gave me the little fifty dollars in my um jailhouse check and then the door buzzed open. Like it was a solid door that buzzes open and conquered. Then when it finally buzzed open, all completely, it feels like, go ahead and you're released. Then I looked at him, I'm like, You sure? And then he was like, Yeah, you're released. 
So then I finally walked out and gave my sister and my mother a hug. I can remember being in Toastmasters one time and there was an older guy that was never getting out. And a lot of guys, he talked about how younger guys say, oh, I can't wait to get out. I can't get wait to get out. And what he added was to do what? And it dawned on me that day that life was going to be drastically different. You know, I had been incarcerated for 17 years. The world had changed a lot. And, um, you know, how I was going to survive was weighing heavy on my mind. But when that, when that door finally opened and I got to hug my daughter and my niece and my mom, that, that was really exciting. But in the back of my mind, the reality of having to get a job and, you know, take care of myself now, um, most people at 53 years old take that for granted. And I can remember thinking that a lot of my friends had owned houses, they had nice cars, and at 53, I was coming home to nothing. Uh, I left the prison with a check for $1,400. So you're basically starting with nothing, and you have to accomplish and achieve everything. And you don't have a lot of time to do that. You know, life comes at you fast. So as, as exciting as it was to go home, it was also pretty intimidating at the same time. This, this story is my first days in, it's a tale of two days. I, I was leaving Concord, a place that I, I built many relationships with. I had received notification from the Nevada Pardons Board that they, they were willing to see me. That began my exit from Concord, but I didn't know whether or not to say goodbye or see you later to the fellas that I'd grown to love and respect. As I went and finally the day came where I was getting ready to be taken over to Logan International, you know, there was a lot of things going through my head. Uh, I had a woman I loved out here in the free world that would come and see me every week. And I had a dog that I was training. I had college I was involved with. And now I'm going back to Nevada where my reputation was horrible. That's where it all started. And they didn't see me anything like Massachusetts did. Finally, I get out to Nevada and they put me in the hole. 23 hours a day, locked down. And here I am getting ready to go to the pardons board in a week. No shaving, nothing like that. Get ready, go to that. Miracle happens. And the attorney general says, yes, we commute your sentence to life with parole. Thunderbolts are going through me. Roller coaster ride, tears coming down my face. I thought about my victim. I thought about my family. 31 years in the, in the joint. Nothing that I had when I was a kid is there anymore. So now I don't know where I'm going, but I know I'm getting out of prison someday because now I have life with parole. I got scheduled for a parole board hearing in within three months. I can't really explain how exhilarating that was to know that I was about to embark on a whole new world that I did not really prepare for. And now I'm getting ready to go be what they call a free man. I thought I was already free. I had told people in prison, I said, your life isn't over because you're in prison. It's not a place. It's a state of mind. 
used to burn me up when I hear people say, oh, I got to wait till I get out. I'm in for three years and my life's over until then. Well, by saying that, you're saying my life's over permanently because I had life without parole when you're telling me that garbage. So I didn't believe in that kind of mentality. And here I am getting ready to leave after believing in my heart that I was never going to walk out of prison. So now I'm leaving into a state that I don't want to go back to Vegas. So now I touch down in Reno, a halfway house. So I didn't feel like I was getting out. There's a sense of excitement, but only a sense. My family's in Vegas, California, and all my friends that I still want to be a part of their life are out here in Massachusetts. All my old gang member friends are out in Nevada, and I can't go back to that life. So I didn't want to see them. So that sense of getting out was lukewarm. That said, after four months, when I finally got told that I'm done with the halfway house and Massachusetts has accepted me, Nevada's kicking me, I'm going back interstate compact outside this time. Now that was exhilarating. I know that wasn't the day I got out of prison, but to me, that's the day that I felt like I really got out of prison. I'm on a plane now with no cuffs. I'm walking through airport securities on my own volition. The whole world's open to me and I can't believe it. I'm excited to meet whoever I meet next. <laughs> I'm making friends everywhere I go, even though I'm not going to see them again. But that's when I really felt like I got out was the day I left Nevada and came back to Massachusetts. It's crazy that you say that because it resonates with me with the bracelet. Like, I always feel like I'm locking in when this curfew time. It's like, damn, I got to go back. And it's supposed to be like the happy place, home. It's my home. Like, I'm supposed to be happy and comfortable at home, but something about the you have to be there at this time, you can't leave. And this uncomfortable device on my leg, scarring my leg, like, something about that just doesn't make me feel free. It has a way of doing it. People getting out with a uh, the ankle bracelet, or they got to breathe into a breathalyzer, and they got to sign in and sign out, and... There's a graduation of freedom to where they kind of steal that excitement away from you. At first, I didn't feel excited to be around them. I felt like they were designed to try to find a way to put us back. I didn't feel like they were allies to try to build us up, put us in the community and activate us as strong community members. I felt like they were trying to tear us down and prove that they were always right. You know, when I sit here at this table and I look around at you guys and I think about this journey of education started on the inside. It was the beginning of a change for all of us. And it's, you know, we hear so many stories about guys getting out and coming back because of the lack of these opportunities. So for me, I think that we started on the inside and here we are on the outside and it's really only just the beginning. Yeah, it's definitely surreal for me, like, to be here now with y'all. I sat in a chow hall with all of you, like, different chow halls. But, you know, I always sat, while I was in jail, I always thought that, you know, um, a day, a surreal day would be like, 
my first day out or when I finally made success. And now that I'm here right now, it's like, this is what's surreal. Seeing so many of us return and we're all involved in this education. I'm especially thankful to be here with you fellas. I love you and I respect you. And I really appreciate seeing the, the trials and tribulations that you went through, that we all went through together and you're sharing. And it means a, a tremendous amount of uh, growth to me. And I'm excited to see how we fare in the future as we're now embarking in the free world. I'm just thrilled to see you guys going along with me in this, in this adventure ride for freedom. For me, I always say prison is 90% mental and 10% physical. And just seeing all of us here today, we got out physically and now mentally we're free as well. So we won the, the battle. Thank you for listening to the My Turn podcast. My Turn is a community-based, university-accredited program, providing education, mentorship, and career development support to and by those who have been directly impacted by the criminal justice system. My Turn's objective is to provide an opportunity for each participant to rediscover and reframe their skills, interests, responsibilities, and commitments. This podcast is created and produced in partnership with Tufts University Jonathan M. Tisch College of Civic Life. Music brought to you by Elmer Playtest. Learn more or support my term at tuppit.org. T-U-P-I-T dot O-R-G.